This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. The Heart Sutra is one of the central teachings of Zen Buddhism. And um, I'm calling this talk Opening the Heart of the Heart Sutra. And I've just got two little quotes to begin with, one from Shakyamuni Buddha. I teach you a path by the middle. It is not a path of annihilation, and it is not a path of permanence. Very, very two key teachings in Buddhism. Just walking the edge, the middle way between nothingness or annihilation, non-existence, and permanence. So Buddhism, teach, Buddhism teaches nothing is permanent, yet still we have existence. And the second quote is from uh, Zokchen Ponlop. I think that's how you pronounce it. He's a Tibetan teacher. By studying our mind, we discover our heart. And by freeing our mind, we open our heart. So I want to emphasize this sutra is all about enlightenment, but I like to say to emphasize the verb enlightenment. And uh, as in really allowing ourselves through this teaching on emptiness to feel lighter, to carry ourselves more lightly throughout the world. This realization of emptiness, which the sutra is talking about, or boundlessness, the word uh, gets translated in different ways, but in English it's usually translated as emptiness or boundlessness, is freeing, freeing ourselves um, from suffering. Doesn't necessarily mean we're going to not, no longer experience physical pain or even the pain of loss. Freeing ourselves from the kind of suffering where we get into all kinds of tr trouble because we think we are a kind of permanent existing entity called Andrew or Mark or Phil. So I'm going to start by just giving a very brief, very brief um, philosophical historical background to the Heart Sutra. And then I'll give a line-by-line -line commentary um, going through it with you so that you understand the various language that is used. And that'll probably take us to the end of the talk today. The final part of the talk is going through the different, differing ways of interpreting the sutra, which I'll probably do in the next talk. <clears throat> the main thing too, though, is that the sutra 
is a teaching, but it's all about how we practice, how we practice emptiness in our lives. And the main sources I've drawn upon for today's talk are Dogen, um, a Japanese teacher who teaches in the West called Okamura, um, Jay Garfield, who's a Tibetan scholar, Greg Good, who's another philosopher in the States, and Barry, Barry Majid, and a couple of qu quotes from Brad Warner, under the influence of Larry, who quite likes Brad Warner. And um, so I'd just like to remind you again about what I've been talking about over the past few weeks about the project of modern Buddhism. In fact, Buddhism came to the West as modern Buddhism, really. Um, even the word Buddhism is a modern concept. There was no Buddhism in the past um, before Westerners in the 19th century started to discover these uh, saffron robe people living in monasteries, and we gave it the title Buddhism. So really, right from the get-go, Buddhism is modernism. Um, and um, if any of you have, have studied uh, the, 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 the vast, complex um, culture of um, Buddhism, uh, you see there are many differences. The, uh, the monks in Thailand or Sri Lanka didn't necessarily talk to the monks in Tibet or the monks in China. In fact, it's only really been with modern Buddhism that Buddhist practitioners from all parts of the globe have come together to have kind of intra-faith discussions to try and work out the common agreements and differences. So Buddhism, inevitably, we have this kind of, um, whether we wish to or not, we're involved in this complex process of interaction between two cultures, the culture of traditional Buddhism and the culture of the West. Um, and as with any other cultural transmission of Buddhism, so in China where it met Taoism and Confucianism, which influenced the way in which Buddhism came together in China, we in the West are incorporating Western notions into Buddhism. And we talked about, um, so like for example, feminism, um, socially engaged Buddhism, uh, therapy and Buddhism, science and Buddhism. These are all the ways in which the West is transforming Buddhism and Buddhism is transforming the West. They both have something to offer to each other. So when we're talking about the Heart Sutra, we will be inevitably influenced by our Western culture in this time and place. And how we think about or teach or discuss the Heart Sutra might not be the same as how it was taught a thousand years ago. So, some historical background to the Heart Sutra. Um, the Heart of Wisdom Sutra um, is one of the many condensations of the earliest Prajnaparamita Sutra, Sutra, which was 8,000 verses, which was translated into Chinese in 179 of the Common Era. However, there is a growing uh, consensus among scholars that the short version of the 
Heart Sutra, the Prashnaparamita Heart Sutra, originated in China, which is very significant. The story goes it was then exported to India, translated into Sanskrit in India, and then retranslated back into Chinese and come back to China again. And uh, the, the number of reasons why people think about in that way now, one, the stability of the Chinese text, the fact that having a mantra in the sutra was a Chinese cultural thing, not an Indian thing. And probably most important of all, the presence of the, the goddess of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, indicating it's a Mahayana sutra, but also indicating the reverence in which Avalokiteshvara was held in, the, uh, in China. Sometimes Avalokiteshvara appears as a man or as a woman, but I think it's probably nice for us to think of her as a, as a woman, as a goddess. And in short, the, the Heart Sutra as a text summarizes the selfless experience of reality and meditation. So the, the Sutra is all about the practice of meditation of Zazen. Philosophical background, um, well, of course, was the whole traditional Buddhism, but plus particular kind of philosophy, which was around before the Heart Sutra called the Amidama. The Amidama was a kind of uh, early psychology, Buddhist psychology. And it's important to know this because it explains some of the kind of, um, some of the lists and some of the things we find difficult to understand about the Heart Sutra when we place it in this philosophical background, it gets easier to understand. <clears throat> so the Amidama philosophy, uh, as with all Buddhism, agreed with the concept of anatman, of no self or not self. But they actually argued that the five scandals exist, as, exist substantially. They actually analyzed them into 75 elements, a little bit like atomic theory like the, uh, there was a certain element of, it, of, of existence which was substantial and real, like an atom which could not be divided anymore. And uh, it also couldn't be divided into time either. So these elements were kind of like, almost like momentary flashes of reality, which was what the Amadharma philosophy was based upon. Um, so when we come to the Heart Sutra, when we come, the Heart Sutra has a lot of series of what are called negations, know this, know that, know that. And a lot of what they're negating is this, the kind of hanging on to this kind of reductionism that was found in early Amidama Buddhist philosophy, where, where reality was reduced to like atoms. And uh, so like you could pull apart a chariot, there'd be no, 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 nothing you could point to, which says that's a chariot or a car, or you could pull apart a person as well, and there's no substantial entity, but it, it gets reduced to these elements, these, these, these very, very instant, instant moments. And uh, so the Heart Sutra is actually saying there's, there's not even any of those that are substantial. The Heart Sutra is saying that everything is, is flowing, everything is impermanent. There's not even an atom that you can find at the ground of all this. There is no foundation for anything in the Heart Sutra teachings. It's a, it's a teaching of foundations. 
just quite interesting because um, it relates very much to uh, modern philosophy or postmodern philosophy in the West, which also teaches there are no foundations, there are no absolute truths. All right, so um, I'm going to go now to the commentary. Starting with the title. So like I mentioned in the introduction, the language is a kind of Sino-Sanskrit pronounced in, and with a Japanese pronunciation. Um, and the, the title, Maha Prashna Paramita Hidra, Hidraya, uh, which means heart, sutra. So Maha, you'll find this term, term Mahayana, means great, a great vehicle. Um, the sense in which this great vehicle can contain all beings, the sense in which, um, you know, we've talked about the Bodhisattva ideal, that the Bodhisattva commits or vows to saving all beings. All beings must be taken to, to Nirvana. That's so, Maha is great, great vehicle. Prashna is a, is, a, is, a, is wisdom, but it's wisdom beyond wisdom. So it's not like a kind of person who's lived a long time who's very wise. It's almost like a kind of wisdom that doesn't belong to anybody really. It's a quality of something which arises when we uh, free ourselves from concepts, I guess. Um, so it's not intellectual understanding, but it's like a, a direct seeing. Um, into the nature of emptiness. And parameter uh, is, has two sort of meanings. One is uh, um, perfection, and the other is uh, being taken to the other shore. Um, this uh, kind of idea that we have um, samsara and nirvana, and like uh, samsara is the cycle of suffering, and nirvana is the freedom from the suffering, and the the other shore, from going from the shore of samsara to the shore of nirvana, to the other shore. It's a nice metaphor, uh, but of course, in the teaching, um, samsara and nirvana are identical, just that we see clearly that everything is empty. So we don't leave the world of samsara, but we see its emptiness, and that's nirvana. So the other shore is awakening, awakening to reality, to the reality of impermanence and interdependence. Heart. So the sutra is about the wisdom that sees emptiness. And but in seeing that emptiness, it opens the heart of compassion. So to quote um, Okamira, wisdom and compassion are the two main aspects of Buddhism and must always go together. Without wisdom, compassion doesn't work. And without compassion, wisdom has no meaning. It's not alive. So heart also means like the heart of the matter, like the most important or essential point of the teaching. And sutra means scripture, basically, or the written expression of the Buddha's teachings. So that's the title. And the sutra 
touches on three basic themes. It begins with the invocation of the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. It's then an examination of all things in the light of shanyata, emptiness. It's also important to remember that emptiness in Buddhism does not mean nothingness. And one of the reasons why people sometimes translate it or choose to translate it as boundlessness is that some of the associations we have with the word empty, such as, oh, I just felt so empty, has a negative connotation. But in Buddhism, it doesn't have a negative connotation. It's more about the emptiness that brings joy. But, you know, because we live in our culture, it's, 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 um, it's, it's, um, I can see that sometimes it's good to talk about emptiness, sometimes it's nice to talk about boundlessness. In Mahayana Buddhism, the earlier teaching of Anatman, which we've talked about, meaning Atman meaning self, Anatman meaning no self, it evolved into this, this notion of shanyata, of emptiness, and being that there is no unchanging entity that is the owner of this body-mind. And that applies to all things, not just to human beings. There's nothing that has inherent separate existence. There's nothing that exists independently. Everything is interrelated. Everything is relation. Everything is always changing, so nothing is substantial. And that's what we mean by emptiness in Buddhism. However, it's very difficult to, well, you can understand it intellectually, but it's hard to understand it experientially. And the practice is all about bringing a kind of experiential understanding to it. Because it's really easy to be, to be blind to the reality of, uh, of emptiness. And that's what we, we uh, suffer unnecessarily often. The realization of emptiness doesn't necessarily mean we will never experience grief, for example. You know, grief, in a way, is a very good example of interdependentness and, and, and impermanence. When we lose someone we love, we lose a part of ourselves. And that pain arises like I chopped off my arm, pain would arise. The realization of emptiness doesn't stop us from experiencing that kind of, but it helps us to free ourselves from um, uh, what we in the West who would call a kind of like egocentricness, you know, sense in which we get attached to our ego and see other people as having egos and how we get caught up into conflict between them and us. So the teachings of emptiness are about freeing ourselves from that kind of suffering which arises from identifying with some separate entity called self. So the first line, um, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. Um, so that there are two kinds of Bodhisattvas in Buddhism. Ordinary human beings like us, we are all little bodhisattvas, um, aspiring towards awakening for ourselves and all beings. And in, uh, in, in, Mah in Mahayana Buddhism, there's also like bodhisattvas who are mythical, celestial beings. Um, and and uh, so beings like uh, Manjushri, who is the bodhisattva of wisdom, and Avalokiteshvara, who is the goddess of compassion. These are mythical beings. And um, 
who symbolize the virtues of, of Buddha. One of the surprising things about this sutra is that it starts with Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva practicing deep prajnaparamita. Um, one would think it would have been Manjushri that would have been the person practicing the wisdom practice, but we find that it's Avalokiteshvara, not Manjushri. And Avalokiteshvara is the embodiment of loving kindness. So who is teaching about wisdom beyond wisdom? Sometimes she's referred to as the mother of all Buddhas. So that indicates again the inseparability between, in Mahayana, between wisdom and compassion. The name Avalokiteshvara can be broken into two different names. Uh, Avalokita, which means to see, to see clearly, and uh, Ishtvara, which means freely. Svara is also translated as sounds, and uh, as in Kanzeon, Avalokiteshvara or Kanzeon is sometimes one who hears the sounds of the world, and the sounds of the suffering. Um, Avalokiteshvara is often portrayed in figurative form as having many arms or many eyes, ear, ears and eyes, I think, too, sometimes. So the sense in which the whole body of Avalokiteshvara, the whole body of the world, hearing the sounds of suffering and delivering people to the other shore. We could also understand Avalokiteshvara as the kind of intelligence that cause us all to awaken, that brought us all here today. The uh, awakening of the body mind, the aspiration to awaken. It's not easy to come here and, and sit in meditation for a number of hours. And uh, we can see the force of Avalokiteshvara manifesting here today. We can also see Avalokiteshvara as life in the sense in which we chant and practice principles, that life itself is the great teacher. In autumn, the leaves fall from the trees. In spring, we have new buds. That's life teaching us all about impermanence and interdependence. The teaching is everywhere. In fact, um, we can see everything and everyone we encounter as teachers. Everyone we encounter as Avalokiteshvara, even that difficult person we don't want to talk to. Avalokiteshvara. And I often say to people these days when they're having a difficult conversation with a loved one or a family member or a friend, how do, you, how do you respond to bring out the best in somebody when, they, when you're ever in that situation? So it's Avalokiteshvara is teaching us how to respond to difficult people by being, us being encountering difficult people. And as bodhisattvas, we aspire to bring all beings to awaken. So how do we respond when someone's being difficult? The, um, so in the second line, it talks about um, all uh, 
um, clearly saw, Avalokitesh clearly saw all five skandhas as empty, transforming anguish and distress, sometimes translated as transforming misfortune and pain, but basically different words for suffering. And in the third line, it refers to Shariputra. So it is, Shariputra is also regarded as the, is, 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 a, is a person, an ordinary being, was regarded as one of the um, wisest of the Buddha's disciples. And uh, the largest sutra is a response to um, uh, Shariputra asking Avalokiteshvara a question, which is not in our short version here, but the question that Shariputra puts to Avalokiteshvara is how should a son or daughter of noble lineage proceed when he or she wants to train in the profound discipline of the perfection of wisdom? In other words, Shariputra is asking Avalokiteshvara, how should we practice if we aspire towards Prajnaparamita? The Heart Sutra, in its completeness, is the answer to that question. Considering everything as uh, shunya, as, as, as um, shunyata, emptiness. And the interesting thing about shunyata as a word is, as I said before, it's often translated as emptiness, but it comes from the original kind of sky words, word for sky. And uh, sometimes it's been interpreted as zeroness as well, as a zero. And, and um, so the, the, the sutra is going to, uh, take on a whole negation of what were the sort of taken for granted teachings of traditional Buddhism, you know, Pali Buddhism. So it negates the five skandhas, the six modes of change, the six sense organs, the object of the six senses, the six sense consciousnesses, the twelvefold chain of causation, and four noble truths. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, so in line two, it clearly saw. So while practicing Zazen, clearly saw that all beings are empty of anything permanent. They are simply collections of the five skandhas, skandha meaning bundles, like a bundle. We're nothing but five bundles. And the five skandhas are rupa, which is body, form, material. And then the rest are kind of mind. Um, so vandana, which is um, the feeling which arises when we're experiencing sensations, and, um, uh, sana, which is perception, perception of sounds and colors, tastes, and so on. Uh, the fourth skanda is uh, sankara, which is often the most difficult to translate. It takes in a lot, often is translated as, as mental formations, um, but it's also a sense in which it's an impulse towards action as well. Could be a sense of reactivity we get caught into, um, or it could also include thoughts and beliefs and patterns. It's um, sometimes translated very differently. Um, and finally, consciousness, um, vinana, consciousness. So all these scandals co arise with each other. They're not separate, they're all interrelated, all happening at the same time. We're just putting them to these five bundles to talk about them using language, but in a sense, they're all interconnected, they're all interdependent. And so the meaning of empty uh, is empty of independent self-existence. It's all interdependent. 
even even our conventional reality um, is empty as well. Um, so like conventional reality is the kind of like the only way in which we can talk about emptiness. So we all live in conventional reality. And um, in order to talk about anything, we have to use language, which is based in duality of subject and object. And um, everything from our identity down to this being a mouse, and this being a glass, and so on. That's all conventional reality. It's all, and that's the world we live in. Now, the interesting thing is the teachings of emptiness don't negate conventional reality, but they just say that it's, it's the flip side of emptiness. So in reality, everything is empty, but in order to understand emptiness and talk, or talk about it, or even live in our culture, we have to negotiate conventional reality. So the teaching um, is about if we see emptiness clearly, then we don't get caught into the suffering which conventional reality creates. In other words, we can we 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 negotiate ourselves, we negotiate our lives in conventional reality, seeing emptiness at the same time. So we we we, we develop the ability to see both views. It's almost like if you had a hand, one side's emptiness and on the other side's conventional reality. They are identical. Conventional reality is form. So in the sutra, it talks about form is emptiness, emptiness is form. But they are negations of each other. So it's kind of like emptiness is, is um, form is emptiness, so emptiness negates form. But then form is also emptiness, which negates emptiness which brings us back to a kind of third perspective. So in Buddhism, this is really, really essential teaching. It's taken me years to try and understand this. Is that from a middle way point of view, we can get caught or identified with conventional reality and we suffer. Or we can actually get caught in emptiness as well. And there's a certain, what's called a Zen sickness that can go with that. And, and sometimes if you get caught in emptiness, things can lose their meaning and you can get into a really nihilistic state of being. So Buddhism is about seeing into the emptiness so we can let go more easily of conventional reality. So it's kind of like a negation of one, like a negation of conventional reality, everything's empty. Then a negation of emptiness, everything is actually conventional reality. But if the third position is holding both. We have to learn to hold both perspectives. And that's the middle way in Buddhism. So I'm gonna, I've only got to um, uh, line two at the moment, um, but um, well, I've sort, of, I've sort of got into lines three and four as well. So I've just kind of like, I've summarized lines three and four. So I'm gonna sort of stop now and um, um, open it up for um, uh, questions, uh, comments at the moment because this is a difficult sutra. So, um, so if anybody on Zoom wants to ask a question, remember just to unmute yourself. Okay.
So is there any, any, any questions at this point in time? We've got until one o'clock, but there's another 25 minutes to go. So but I'd like to stop talking and I'll give you a chance. So, I mean, basically, I mean, just share like, for example, you've probably read the Heart Sutra before, you've probably had some questions about it or puzzled about it. Like who's, I mean, I, are you all familiar with the Heart Sutra? Yeah. Um, no, no, not, not even familiar with it. Okay, well, it's, it's, it's good that you started to get familiar with it now. <laughs> um, the, um, so Kate, go on. Two. No, ask him to repeat it because it won't be. Oh, just sorry, sorry, Kate. Hang on. What are you saying, David? Just if you repeat the question before you answer it, so we can hear what the question was. Yeah, I will. I will because you can't hear Kate talking. Right. Okay. So go on. Go on, Kate. Go on. Okay, uh, Kate's question is, um, um, what I've said so far about the Heart Sutra sounds more like Tibetan Buddhism. Is, is Chinese or Japanese Zen Buddhism uh, the same? That's a good question. Um, though there uh, are, even within Tibetan Buddhism, there are different uh, takes on the Heart Sutra. Um, and, uh, and I think uh, like you can have a more literary or a more philosophical take on it. And I think in Zen, uh, probably in Zen Buddhism, there's more emphasis on just chanting it um, and not so much discussing the meaning of it. Uh, that's something we do a little bit more in the West. So the, in the Zen tradition would be more about uh, actualizing or realizing the Heart Sutra uh, in more direct ways. Um, you know, so like, you know, if you ever read the, every koan in some way is about this. But the, but the, see, what you have to get in Zen, which is similar, is, is this notion of the essential and the relative. So in every koan, there's a kind of play between these two all the time. Like, so like, if it looks like you're getting stuck in emptiness, the teacher's going to bring you back to the particularity such as Buddha is just a shit, dried shit stick, right? And um, if you get lost too much in the particularity, <clears throat> the teacher's going to bring you back to the oneness of everything. So in, 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 in Zen, this notion of the two, the, the two understandings or the two perspectives of form is emptiness, emptiness is form, or, you know, the only, re only reality we really have is conventional reality which is not absolute reality. But if we're going to speak about anything, we can only speak in conventional terms. And in a sense, sometimes Zen tries to undermine that by using language in a non-conventional way. Um, and, um, and, or, or, or um, you know, you'll find koans where, you know, the, the monk comes to enlightenment by hearing the, 
you know, they're sweeping in the yard and they sweep a, a little rock and the rock goes like that. And it's a kind of opening into emptiness which occurs. So I guess the Zen tradition has a, a less philosophical emphasis, more <clears throat> of a direct experience emphasis. Okay, is that, is that any other questions, Kate, on that question? Okay, uh, so Michael, go. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Andrew. Um, you've spoken in terms of um, form, no uh, emptiness is form, form is emptiness. People also uh, uh, talk about, and then also no emptiness and no form. And um, uh, I just uh, wondered how, uh, how you might um, see that if it's not already implicit in some of the things that you've said so far, but did, I wondered if you might like to say something about when people start saying, and, and also no emptiness and no form, well, I think the the important thing there is probably no emptiness. So the um, the important thing is um, emptiness itself is a concept. It's, it's and and so not to get stuck in in that. So not to not to reify or create. See, in the Zen tradition, it's kind of like we talk about boundlessness, or we talk about everything being empty, and we want to kind of sort of we get we get tempted to create that into something that's behind the emptiness. So the, the teaching of the emptiness of emptiness is, is, to, right. is, to, is to undercut that. That tendency we have to want to reify something. We have a strong tendency to want to make it something permanent that we can have, have as our foundation. So the teaching of the emptiness of emptiness is undercutting that. That includes all Buddhist teachings, all empty. Don't hang on to any perspective. Or, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Uh, do, you want to, do you want to make a comment, Gareth? Yeah, go on. Yeah, I, I just did you hear that? So, okay, Gareth was just saying that it, it reminds him of Nisargadatta's teaching of not this and not that. And also, there's a teaching in the book of, of, of the of, uh, of Course in Miracles, Longness in the Mind. So, there's a sense in which there are some similarities. Um, the, I think, I'm not quite sure, I'm not, I'm not an expert on those two teachings. But, yeah, but in, 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 the, in the Buddhist teachings, um, we come back to the conventional reality again, because um, um, the, um, the teaching of, of, of the emptiness um, is about helping us to see through that there's nothing permanent. But then, there's, so for example, you know, the common example of, of the life of a human being like I was born such and such a time and die at such and such a time, or we look back at our life now, and we have a feeling that there's some, some sense of continuity that exists from when I was a, a child to now as an adult. From an emptiness perspective, um, there's no continuity. There's only ever this moment. 
But from a conventional reality perspective, there is continuity. We couldn't, we couldn't exist in this world without that conventional reality. So Buddhism doesn't, uh, it doesn't, um, it doesn't demonize conventional reality. It, 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 it actually allows us to, to play with conventional reality. In other words, to see that it's all fictional, but it, it, but it makes, it matters. It makes a difference. Uh, because we're all in this conventional world together. But it gives us a bit of freedom to see that it doesn't always have to be like this. It can change. Um, so we come back to using conventional reality skillfully. Uh, Louise. There's actually nowhere in the sutra where it says there's no emptiness and no form. The, the sutra says form is emptiness, emptiness is form. I was kind of like paraphrasing. So like um, it says, and Dogen says things like form is form. In other words, there's a certain duality in that notion of emptiness is form, form is emptiness. And Dogen says form is form. Emptiness is emptiness, meaning they're the same, identical, there's no difference between them, but language can trigger us. Um, and um, whereas the negation of emptiness is about preventing this tendency we have to make emptiness into something. This emptiness is not a something. But, but was there another point you wanted to make? But, um, yeah, no. yeah, it is very tricky. Yeah, it's very tricky. I'll go to Tom and then Daryl. Okay, or did you want to do something complete? Yeah, okay. You can say that's a form of dualism. Yeah, what is? No form, there is form. Yeah, if you say no form, um, and, and, and that's a form of dualism. Yeah. So the, the sutra is trying to avoid that dualism. Yeah. That's why it negates a lot of our dualities, such as existence, non-existence, negating all those dualities. Yeah. 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 Tom? Yeah, that's a lovely book. Yeah, highly recommend it.
Yeah, Tom was just saying that he's been reading Shunru Suzuki, and in Shunru Suzuki, he has a phrase saying, not one, not two, just saying the same thing in a sense. So, like, um, it's, it's saying, don't get caught in, don't get stuck in the one and don't get stuck in the two. Uh, see both at the same time. The third position is, is seen them both. Yeah, you're right. It's a dialectic, yeah. You find it in Dogen's uh, Genjo Kayan. Um, he starts off by saying, you know, there's, there's Buddhas and there's delusion, right? So you start off in the relative world, the world of conventional reality, right? So, you know, you know you're enlightened and I'm not. Right? That's conventional reality. And then he goes in, there's no, there's no delusion, no enlightenment. In other words, you've seen into emptiness, right? There's nobody who's enlightened because there's nothing substantial that exists. Right? Enlightenment is just the world as it is. And um, then he comes back down to, and there's Buddhas and there's delusion. But you come back to the third perspective, having had the realization of emptiness is different. Are you with me? Okay. The first step is we're in conventional reality and there are Buddhas and there are delusions, deluded ones, right? First step, right? That's, that's form. Then you see that there's no Buddhas and no delusion. That's emptiness. That's in, and, and then the third step is to come back to the world again as a sort of empty person. But you interact in the world, right? That's the third step. Yeah. 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 saying that um, in Dogen's uh, first chapter or second chapter of the Shobin Genzo on the on this sutra, um, he talks about Avalokiteshvara, not just seeing clearly, but embodying embodying wisdom and compassion. So we we embodied it. We, we embody it in our zazen practice. Yeah. Yeah. Jason, did you want to ask a question? No? no? Okay. Uh, Phil? Well, I think it's a different one. 
yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like um, Phil, um, Phil's talking about um, in the uh, in Chan Buddhism under the influence of Taoism. Um, they had maybe a slightly different feel about it, where they used like you could use absence as a synonym for emptiness and, and presence as a synonym for all the, uh, the ten thousand things, the empirical reality of the universe. And the sense in which in Taoism, um, there's a sense in which form merges or is generated, generated from absence. Uh, it's a slightly different take uh, than on the uh, the strict Tibetan one. And um, and it's, I was going to get to that at some other point, but Phil's brought it up. It's um, so it's a more poetical, more poetical artistic understanding of it um, in the sense in which um, all the all the multiplicity of, of of the phenomena emerge from this 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 empty or absent but 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 generative void in the sense but again be, be, be careful not to ratify the absence yeah no there's not no, the, 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 I mean but that's I, I, it should never be interpreted as nothingness anyway. Yeah, um, but there's a sense in which there's, it's a more using natural, natural images, natural philosophy. Yeah, and that's another way of of relating to it, which probably in our sutra book I put the two in. I've got two translations. The first one that we do, the second translation that we do this afternoon, uses the word boundlessness, which is the Tanahashi and John Halifax translation. And um, yeah, there are kind of like with everything, there are philosophical and more artistic ways into this. But that again, all, all comes back to how do we make, uh, this is also a practice, a, a meditation practice as well. Meditation practice of emptying ourselves or of letting go of non-clinging and non-grasping. Uh, yeah, but that's a good point. So we're getting near the end of the session. Um, so another comment or question. Is everybody totally confused or are you with us a little bit? Yeah, so Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, practicing the deep, so she's, no, she's practicing deep prajna parameter, so the perfection of wisdom clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty. So from like from above, almost like seeing clearly. Um, and then and, and in that seeing, that's the transformation of anguish and distress in that scene. And uh, she says to Shariputra, the disciple, Shariputra, form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness is no other than form. Form is exactly emptiness. Emptiness is exactly form. Sensation, perception, formulation, consciousness are also like this. So in Buddhism, consciousness is also one of these bundles. It's not something which is permanent. It's not something which is somehow that's in, in, in this particular teaching of Buddhism. But you will find variants on that even though in, in, in other like Tibetan traditions like Dzogchen and Mahmudra have slightly different teachings. Um, 
when it goes on to say all things are essentially empty, then it negates the, it talks about not born, not destroyed, not stained, not pure, without loss, without gain. There is no substantial entity that is born or is dark. So we're never born and we never die because we never leave the absence presence now. We're not born and separate from it. We're always part of that process. So in fact, there's nothing that's really born or destroyed or appears or disappears. In conventional reality, yes, we talk about it in that way. Waterfall, yeah. So the waterfall, yeah. Uh, David, that, oh, oh. Yeah, hi Andrew. I'm not sure if it's relevant to the Heart Sutra or if you have anything to say on it. I just was struck by what you said about, um, if I'm correct, that, that Zen has nothing to say about continuity, except that sort of brings you back to just there is only the moment. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just, it just sparked my curiosity, I guess, around connecting things to do with um, physics or that sort of perspective where time seems to be this sort of um, undeniable reality within physics and yet it can't actually be measured or proved or disproved. So, I'm sort of wondering if, if if there's anything more that you could say about time from a Zen perspective or, or what you meant by continuity or, or clarify anything there that might be relevant to today's discussion. Yeah. The, the, the question of time will probably leave till next year when we study Dogen's time and being, being or time being. The, uh, Dogen's the most eloquent well, one of the most eloquent uh, Buddhist philosophers on the question of time. Um, um, but um, in terms of continuity, let, let's just keep it simple in terms of continuity. So there's, there's a sense in which I was trying to find it, not know if Larry remembers it, that, that you can remember the, the expression with the tea ceremony, the one meeting, you know the Japanese, when you're having a one meeting, Tea ceremony is a Japanese phrase for it. I can't remember it. Well, anyway, there's a Japanese phrase in the tea ceremony which kind of like captures that idea that whenever, like, I'm going to be a different person tomorrow than I am today. So when we meet, it's one meeting, can never happen again. And that's kind of like the tea ceremony. So there's a sense in which, you know, every moment we meet, we're different people. Um, on the other hand, um, there's, and there's, there's, there's never any fixed point where you can say you begin and end. But from a conventional point of view, we, 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 we hang it together with our story, with our narrative. And uh, so the, we have that sense of continuity, which is necessary for us to function as human beings. Okay, uh, any one last question or comment? Everybody totally clear about the Heart Sutra? Mm -hmm. <laughs>
yeah. I mean, the, the, just you know, just drop all the sort of thinking, I guess, and uh, you know, throw yourself into the chanting this afternoon, especially into the into the mantra, because you you become the mantra. Mantra in itself is is a teaching um, beyond like intellectualizing. So just just chanting the mantra, uh, like the sound of the bell, is a teaching. It's just sound which arises from nowhere and goes back into me. Same as the mantra. And that's what we are. We're exactly the same as the mantra. We're not different. 